Good morning. Would you please open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 21. If you're following along in a pew Bible, it'll be on page 62. I'll be reading Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 32. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore, in his, bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, there is no harm. But there is no harm. The one who hits her shall be surely fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. 
If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome once again to the Book of the Covenant. That's the name given in uh, chapter 24, verse 7, to this section of case law that we encounter here in our journey through the book of Exodus. This case law that is the practical outworking of the Ten Commandments that the Lord God has just recently thundered from Mount Sinai. And there's a couple of different directions that you can go from the Ten Commandments. You can, uh, you can move upwards, which is to say you can speak about them generally. So you could summarize these ten words with actually just two, which are, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the, the other way is like it, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's a, that's a very good and proper approach. That's the approach that the Lord Jesus Christ took when he was asked to comment on the Ten Commandments. But it is also helpful to move in the opposite direction, not to speak generally, but to get really specific. And instead of moving up, to kind of drill down at some of the, the ways that these Ten Commandments get cashed out, so to speak, in just the everyday life of the covenant community. So, you know, these Israelites, like us, are practical people. And so we want to know what this looks like, sp very specifically, when, say, my neighbor borrows my snow machine and crashes it into a fallen log. And then what are we supposed to do if it comes to blows and I go a little too far and I hospitalize the guy? You know, what, what then? What is the specific way that I can love my neighbor in that situation, you know, after I punched him in the throat? Um, these are the real life, I mean, it's not, uh, it's nothing to brag about, but these are the real life situations uh, that we encounter. And so we want to know what's practically, specifically, does it look like to love God and love my neighbor in all of these cases? And that's precisely what we have in these detailed instructions that we have in the next few chapters of Exodus. And of course, it would, get, it would be very easy to get bogged down in all of the details. So I've proposed to you that we kind of walk across the top of them as if on snowshoes to see if we can understand some principles as we encounter particular problems. And last week, we, uh, we discovered the, the first and the most fundamental of these principles which is the fear of the Lord. We saw that our obedience to God's will and our obedience to God's word, that's going to depend entirely on whether or not we fear him. And as we come now into chapter 21, the very next topic we encounter is slavery. And let's just go ahead and admit that this is an incredibly difficult one. So many things are stacked against us properly understanding this passage. 
for starters, we, we think we have a pretty clear idea of what slavery looks like. And to us, what we immediately think of is the, the cruel, transatlantic, chattel slavery that our ancestors participated in. And no doubt, this, this sin stains America's history with the deepest dye. And, and uh, it has effects even down to the present day. And it renders all of us very self-conscious. Even though we are generations removed from that, we are all very, want to be very careful. We're very self-conscious about how we think about or how we speak about slavery. And one of the results of this is that we are very eager whenever we get the opportunity to condemn the institution of slavery. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we uh, find it quite embarrassing that the Bible doesn't just jump at every opportunity to condemn slavery. Or, uh, as we would put it, use its platform to abolish the wicked institution. So as, as long as we're talking about what we modern Westerners find repugnant, we could also add to that list um, the patriarchy and arranged marriages, both of which figure prominently in our passage today alongside of slavery. And so all of that to say that if, we, if we're hoping to take an objective look at this passage today, the odds are certainly not in our favor. Um, but I've found that it's always best to be suspicious of my own so-called objectivity and to be suspicious of modern obsessions instead of, I, I would rather be suspicious of those things than to be suspicious of scripture. It's always better, this is a general principle that you can take to the bank, it's always better to read scripture on its own terms than on mine or on yours. And I know it sounds ridiculous when I say this out loud, but I am not the Lord's moral superior. You understand that, right? God, God is more gracious and more loving and more compassionate than I or all of Western civilization has ever begun to be. He stands in judgment of us. We don't stand in judgment of him. In fact, this is the bottom line. If you're, if you're wanting kind of the headline right at the beginning, th this, is, this is what's going on here. Not just in these cases dealing with slavery, but in the wide variety of the cases that will be presented to us throughout these next chapters, what we're going to discover is the incredible grace of God. These laws, these um, cases are going to illustrate, they're going to highlight for us just how compassionate the Lord is and how compassionate he requires his people to be towards the weak and the powerless, the low and the despised in the eyes of society. That's, that's what we're going to see. That's where we're headed. So are you ready, ready to tackle this? I'm not. So would you please uh, join me in praying one more time? Ask the Lord for his help. Our Father and our God, we, we just bow 
before you humbly, we confess, Lord, that we are ignorant. Lord, forgive us for our imagined superiority. Forgive us for our worldly wisdom. Help us, Lord, to just hear you and to hear your word. Be ready to believe it and obey it. Father, I ask uh, in particular that you would help me as a preacher, that I would be able to think clearly and speak clearly, and that together we would learn and grow and, and just believe all that you have for us. I pray that anything that I say that is untrue, that is uh, unhelpful, that you, in your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would just override and overrule and that you would build us up today according to the truth. We ask now for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look first at just some of the facts surrounding the, these rules regarding slavery. I'm thankful to Matthias for reading this whole chapter, um, but we're going to focus especially uh, in our time now on the first 11 verses and some other related verses throughout this chapter. It's always helpful, I think, not just with this difficult text, but even with the standard ones, to consider the context. And by that, I mean the stuff that is surrounding the passage that we find ourselves in. And you might consider first the historical context. And this is simply to note that slavery was a very common practice at that time in the ancient Near East. In fact, Slavery has been common in most cultures throughout most of human history. Now, of course, understand what I'm saying. The fact that it's universal doesn't really have any bearing on the morality of the institution. But I, I just bring that up to say that if we're canceling people on the basis of whether or not they've been as associated in some way with slavery, then we're going to have to be prepared to cancel pretty much everyone who has ever lived. To be sure, slavery is an institution with tremendous potential for evil, but I think it's wise if we just kind of pause before proclaiming that the institution is, by definition, evil. I know uh, that might sound wrong, um, but I, again, just, I. I think it's wise to just pu press pause for a second. Certainly the, the slavery that was practiced in our country was, was wicked. Okay? It, was, it was tremendously evil. For starters, it involved man-stealing. It involved uh, the selling of that stolen man or woman. And that is something that is explicitly prohibited in verse 16 of this chapter. And I'll just um, ask you to take a look at that. that. That was the basis of American chattel slavery, and it is strongly condemned. In fact, so strongly, you, you can note here that the violators of this were to be executed. So right away, we should understand that the slavery that's being regulated here is of a different species than the notorious kind that we are perhaps more familiar with. And what's in view here is an arrangement that folks would voluntarily enter into 
when they or their family perhaps were, were destitute, when they were in debt up to their eyeballs, where they had no other option, and rather than to starve, um, they would sell themselves into slavery. Or perhaps you would prefer a different word if that word is going to be a stumbling block to you. You can, you can think of this as them selling themselves into indentured servitude. So they would work for a master who would pay off their debts and provide all of their necessities like food and clothing and lodging and they would then be considered the, the property of their master, but they would, be out of, they would be out of debt, so to speak. And to modern ears, that situation sounds very demeaning. It, it sounds terrible, doesn't it, to even to, to use the phrase that the, this person would be the property of their master. Or later on in the passage, to... to to come across the words that the slave is the master's money. It sounds very dehumanizing, demeaning. And we wonder, well, well, wasn't there some sort of welfare system? You know, couldn't they have received some sort of government handout? Was there no debt forgiveness program back then? And the answer to all of those questions is no. There was none of those things, probably for a lot of different reasons. But a primary reason being that those folks would have found handouts to be demeaning. They would consider indentured servitude to be a far more honorable, honorable position than begging or expecting some sort of a bailout. We should be very suspicious about our own prejudices. Uh, what we find to be dignified and expected other people in other cultures would find to be very shameful. So that's something of the historical context. Slavery was very common in that time period. In the best instances, it was a way for a poor person to work themselves out of debt. If you were destitute, it would be better for you to lose your personal freedoms and rights than to lose your life. And you understand that the Lord God is not instituting slavery here in Exodus 21. Neither is he abolishing it. Rather, he is regulating it. And as we shall see, he is reforming it in significant ways. And that reformation, I think, comes into clearer view when we consider the literary context. So it's the stuff that surrounds this passage in the book of Exodus. And maybe you're wondering, wondering to yourself, why does the book of the covenant, chapter 21 here, begin with the topic of slavery? And I know I've been asking myself that a lot lately. Couldn't I just have been able to deal with some easy ones first? But the order is very important. The reason that slavery is dealt with first is because of the whole context of the book of Exodus. This people has just been rescued in the most amazing way, out of slavery and out of the most wicked kind of slavery. The slavery that they experienced in Egypt was, was based on ethnicity. It was cruel. It was oppressive. The Israelites groaned under the weight of it. And not only that, but their slavery was prolonged. It lasted for more than four centuries. 
And now the, that the Lord has rescued them, and now that the Lord is constituting them as his people and leading them into their own homeland, rule number one is going to be you must deal righteously with your slaves. The context of this people's past is going to prove to be very important as we make our way through these laws. The upcoming cases are going to spell out what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, but undergirding all of that is what we might call an ethic of empathy. And what I mean by that is that to, to follow these rules righteously is going to require remembrance, okay? It'll be necessary to remember our condition before and after our redemption. And if that sounds confusing to you, I understand. I think the, the point is made more clearly and more explicitly when these laws about slavery are repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15, um, I'll read for you verses 12 to 15. There it says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command this to you today. Do you see the the logic there? This is how it works when we remember that in the gospel, the Lord has dealt so mercifully and generously with us, then we are moved to deal graciously and generously with our fellow man. Now, I know that this, it probably seems like this topic is so far removed from, from your own time and experience that you don't have any clue how this sermon is going to apply to you. And maybe you're feeling sorry for me in this moment, because how on earth, pastor, are you going to be able to apply this? Well, it does, it applies in this way. This same ethic undergirds every obligation that we have in the new covenant. We are admonished to remember our redemption and to love our neighbor in light of the gospel. So for example, I'll just give you a few examples here. After hearing a list of all manner of sin and all manner of sinners, we're urged in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to remember that such were some of us. This is is prompting an ethic of empathy here. And likewise, to motivate us to generous giving, Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. And the Apostle Paul admonishes us to be kind towards each other, to be tenderhearted, and to, you know how the rest of that goes? Forgive each other as God has forgiven you. See, all of, all of these ethics are based on sympathy for the, the state of the other person and remembrance for the fact that we were once in that same state, and yet we received mercy at the hand of a gracious God. 
we're to act in the same way as has been acted on us. So just think about that. Imagine how it might affect how you think about other people, how you even just think about them, but also how you treat them. If you were to be able to truly empathize with them, if you were to remember that you too were once a slave, but you were redeemed, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, to, to really dwell on that, I think, would radically affect how we treat other people. Well, those are just some of the facts about slavery. Let's look in the second place at freedom. Let's look at the freedom. There's a key, there's a key phrase that runs throughout the first 11 verses of this chapter. Two, two little words in English. And thus, it's pretty easy to miss. The phrase is, I'm stalling so that you can discover it on your own. The phrase is, go out. It occurs seven times in these verses. And it's actually the key phrase in the whole book because go out in Hebrew is the word for exodus. So this book is all about what the Lord has done with a, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm to lead his people to go out of Egypt, out of the land of their slavery. So the Lord has demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is a freedom lover, that he's a freedom fighter, if we could put it that way, that he is all about having his people freed for the purpose of worship so that they might worship and serve him. And freedom, I know it doesn't seem like this, but if you, if you kind of just go back and read it through this lens, you'll discover that freedom is actually the emphasis of this section. The point of all of these situations is not to establish what slavery should look like, but rather it's to illustrate a number of conditions that would result in a slave's going out. Freedom. So let's just take one example. We'll look at a few more in just a minute. But if you just scan down to verses 26 and 27, the case involves a, a master striking his slave such that the slave sustains irreparable damage to a part of his body, whether an eye or a tooth. And in cases like that, the slave must be set free. Freedom is the only payment in, in those situations. And in general, freedom for the slave comes through two different means. Okay, there's, there's others, I suppose, but here are two major ways that a slave gains his or her freedom. It can come, number one, through, and uh, my apologies to you for the fact that there's no outline for you. You'll have to create one on the fly here. Um, I'll, I'll help you. We're under the second point, freedom. And here's some subheadings. You can have freedom through rest, or you can have th freedom through redemption. Through rest or through redemption. Let me just take a couple minutes to show you both of those. First of all, freedom for the slave can come through rest. 
And I'm referring in a rather roundabout way to the regulation in verse 2. Look there with me. It says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. I'm calling this freedom through rest because it involves the Sabbath principle. Do you see how this is an application of the fourth commandment? For six years, a slave shall work for his master, and then he shall be granted rest. The, the seventh year is like a Sabbath. And in that seventh year, the master is to release his slave and give him freedom. And masters are to release their slaves in the situation that they were in when they came in. If they are single, they're to be released single. If they came in married, then both the slave and his wife were to be released together. Now, it's a slightly different case if the slave, you know, got married to another slave during his time of service. We'll cover that in a minute. But for now, I just want you to see and appreciate what the Lord is concerned about. He is concerned about a slave's freedom. And he guarantees it by law in the seventh year of service. Slavery is just a temporary condition. The goal is freedom and that through a Sabbath rest, so to speak. But freedom for a slave also comes through redemption. And we see this in a particularly challenging section of case law, verses 7 to 11. And the situation has to do with a female slave. This is very difficult for us to relate to, but in that time and in that culture, a destitute father might sell his daughter to serve a master. The young lady, of course, would work and serve that man and his family, but it was also for another purpose. It was, it was for the ulterior motive of eventually being married. Either mar the, the master would marry her or he would designate her to be the wife of his son. And for the girl's father, this was a, a way of paying his debts and it was also a way for him to secure a marriage partner for his daughter, which he would have to do anyway. But this is kind of like a, a kill two birds with one stone sort of a situation. And for the master, this was, a, this was a good way of seeing if this young woman had potential as a spouse or, you know, seeing if she fit in well with the family and those sorts of things. But, but the law anticipates that what should happen if that plan goes south in any way. First of all, that, that young woman must not be released on the seventh year like male slaves because she's meant to be someone's wife. But if the master ends up not being pleased with her for whatever reason, then she must be allowed to be freed from that situation. The master is the problem there. As the end of verse 8 says, he has broken faith with her. So that was not the deal that she had signed up for, that he had signed her up for. The deal was that she was going to have the security of marriage through this arrangement, 
And since that is now being taken off the table, this woman must be granted her freedom. And freedom through redemption. Do you see that in verse 8? He shall let her be redeemed. Now, to redeem simply means to buy back. To buy back. So this girl, who's in a terrible situation, a slave who was supposed to become a wife, but whose, whose master welched on the deal, this woman's father, or perhaps a man who truly loved her, could buy her back. He could purchase her freedom at a cost. And in this, it seems to me, we have just a beautiful picture of the gospel. The, you know, the cross of Jesus Christ is like a, a diamond. It has many facets, many, many angles from which we can view its beauty. And one of those is redemption. This is what the cross of Christ has done. It's purchased our redemption. One of my very favorite books is by um, John Stott. The book is called The Cross of Christ, and Stott wrote this. The emphasis of the redemption image is on our sorry state, indeed our captivity, our captivity in sin, which made a divine rescue necessary. This is what redemption is pointing us to, our own pitiful condition and the divine rescue uh, that paid our debt. The great hymn writer Philip Bliss, who, by the way, trained in music here in Geneseo, led us to sing these words. Sing, O sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free redemption. Friends, understand this. The Lord is interested in your freedom. The Lord has moved heaven and earth for your freedom. He has given his one and only son to purchase your freedom. And what an incredible cost that was. And so we read in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now, if, if you happen to be someone today who has come into this place groaning under the weight of your sin, under your slavery, the good news is that you can be set free today. By the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, truly, truly, Jesus says to you in John chapter 8, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And I, I just wonder if you're a person here today that's longing for the freedom that comes only through repentance and faith, then, then we want to invite you to uh, pursue that. We would invite you to this front pew at the close of the service, and there will be folks there that would love to pray with you and to point you to Jesus, the only Redeemer. Let's look at a third and final aspect of slavery that comes from these regulations, and this has to do with family and friends. 
I didn't know what else to call it, but if the if these rules concerning slaves and masters, uh, it, it, what we see here in all of these rules, the slaves and masters, let me just say this, you know, that even just hearing that, I know what you're thinking, I think it, you think of that relationship as being largely transactional and impersonal at best, adversarial at worst. And in that kind of a mindset, it's perhaps shocking to find in these verses a lot of family language. So we come across multiple instances of words like wife, sons, daughters, children in various different situations. And all of this leads us, I think, to the conclusion that the Lord is not just interested in freedom, but he's also quite interested in family and friendships. So let's just take uh, another look at two of these situations to see this emphasis on on family, especially. And one is that situation in which a master buys a Hebrew slave to secure her as a future wife, either for him or for his son. But but let's say for his son, in that case, verse 9 demands that he deal with her as with a daughter. He's to deal with her, not primarily as, you know, this no-name slave with just a number on her uniform, but as a daughter. At a minimum, this means that he's, he's not to deal with her as a piece of property, and not even just he's not to deal with her as a person, he's, he's to deal with her as a daughter. And those of you dads who have little girls, no matter how old they are, they still are little girls to you, you know what that involves. It, it involves provision for her that borders on spoiling. It means uh, a tenderness towards her that's, that's matched with, with purity and so on and so forth. All, all of these images that you conjure up of the way that you treat your daughter, that's how a master is supposed to treat a Hebrew slave who he has designated for his son. And then verse 10 outlines a case where the master has designated the female servant not for a future wife for his son, but as a future wife for himself. It then imagines a further case in which the master takes a second wife. Now, that's a hard topic just all unto itself. It's, it's, it's probably not a topic that's wise to tackle in the waning minutes of our time together. We're talking about slavery, for goodness sake. I'm going to save the discussion on multiple marriages for another time, if that's okay. That's the decision I, I've made, and I hope you'll agree that that's bigamy. <laughs> I, think it, I think it's enough for us to see that if, for whatever ultimately sinful reason, a man doubles the number of wives that he has, the first woman must not experience a 50% drop 
in his provisions. He must still give her full provision of food and clothes and marital rights. And the law stipulates that if he can't or if he won't, then she must be granted her freedom. It says she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Do you, do you see how the Lord is concerned with the weak and the powerless and the people that have no status or station? Do you see how zealous the Lord is to keep families intact? And this was one of the many evils of the kind of slavery that was practiced here in America. My wife just finished reading a book that Maddie Kranz lent her. Um, the book is Roots by Alex Haley, and maybe some of you have read it or watched the, the movie. And that story traces the, the story of an 18th century teenager who was captured in Africa and sold as a slave into the North American slave trade. And the story traces his lineage all the way down to Haley. And it's the, it's the gnarliest of family trees because of the absolutely detestable and wicked way in which wives were torn from husbands and children from mother, not just in Africa, but in America too. And God's law was a guard against such evil. As we saw it, if a man came into his slavery single, he's to go out the same way. If he went in married... He's to leave with his wife in hand. Now, in verses 4 to 6, there's a, there's a case in which man enters slavery single, but his master graciously gives him a wife, and then that wife bears him children. Technically, this is why this case is a little different, because technically the master has employment rights to the wife and to those children. And so even if it's the man's Sabbath year and freedom is to be granted to him, that doesn't mean that the wife and the children can go free if they haven't yet served six years. You see? So the, the man, of course, would have the opportunity to redeem his family, to, to work in order to purchase their freedom. But there's, there's another possibility that's previewed for us. Look at verse 5. It would be possible for that man, though eligible for release, to say plainly, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. That would signal this guy's intention to forego his personal right to freedom and to attach himself permanently to his master, which would keep his family intact. So when this guy says, I love my wife and children, we, we get that. We totally get that. What we can't understand is what he says first. I love my master. And the fact that we can't understand that, I think, is a pretty good indication that we misunderstand Hebrew slavery. This isn't Stockholm Syndrome. Okay, there, there was such a thing clearly as an intimate, personal, grateful relationship between a master and his bondservant. And if this was the slave's intention, then there, was, there needed to be a, a ritual that would formalize it. 
This ritual would be done in the presence of God and before witnesses. In this ritual, the, the master would take the slave to a doorpost and punch through his earlobe with an awl. Ouch is right, but a bunch of you ladies have done that type of thing before. Okay, This is the origin of ear piercing. And the symbolism seems to have something to do with the, with the servant's ears. And many scholars think that that should signal kind of his readiness to hear and to obey his master. I'm not sure. Whatever its significance, it, it functions as a sort of permanent branding so that it would be evident to all, any person that would ever see him, it would be evident that this man is his master's and his master is his forever. Now, I, I recognize that that probably sounds barbaric and dehumanizing to your modern ears, the idea of branding someone. But I have a, a very strong hunch that there was a fellowship time after that ceremony. Do you know what I mean by that? I bet you there was a huge party. I bet you this was a joyful event. It might seem very problematic to you, um, that I'm standing up here today and I'm not condemning all forms of slavery, that's, that's the kind of thing that could get a guy canceled. It might seem very odd to you and problematic. You wonder why can't this guy just condemn all slavery by definition? And the reason I'm not doing that is because I think that would constitute a profound misunderstanding of what's going on here with the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. And I hope that you don't think that I'm standing up here claiming to understand it all. That couldn't be further from the truth. I don't, I have way more questions than I have answers. But I'm convinced that, that if I stood before you and gave you just kind of a blanket condemnation of slavery, then I would be missing and I would be causing you to miss and therefore fail to appreciate much of the New Testament language that describes the Christian life. Language that we have employed to our encouragement in much of the scripture reading and the song that we've sung already today. You understand that we, we, we make statements like this, that he is our Lord and that Christ is our master. We are his bondservants. Or if you want to get really technical, that we are slaves to Christ. He has redeemed us. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Our lives are to be lived in obedience to his word and his will. It's all, it's all the, the image and the language of slavery and if you're wondering if we have or in one sense we will be at some point branded, I would just encourage you to read the book of Revelation. All right. And here's just one example. This from Revelation chapter 3 verse 12. Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia and in Dansville, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out 
Here's that, here's that phrase again. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name I will write on him. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So brothers and sisters, fellow slaves, let us listen to and let us believe and let us obey the word of Christ, our master. And let us rejoice in the fact that he is ours and we are his forever and forever. Amen? Amen. Amen.